Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. Dr. Joe Armstrong here, Dr. Bradley J. Hines here, and Dr. Isaac Sulfur here as well. We have a guest, no Emily today, which is sad, but it's the way it is. And at least we found a beautiful replacement in in <laughs> Isaac Sulfur today. How are you doing, Isaac? So this might be the first time I've been uh, called beautiful in my life, Joe. So thank you for that nice compliment. Today, the goal is to get to know Isaac. Isaac, this is always a weird deal, right? When I we, we had the same thing when we had Isaac Hagen on. We're recording and we're actually in the same building, but we're recording online. So it's always weird to know that Isaac's just a few doors down and we're, we're talking to each other through a computer. But that's the way it works best. Isaac's here at the university. He is a professor that has a teaching and a research role. He's got a lot of interesting research on the dairy side uh, when it comes to nutrition and, and everything else. So the goal today is to get to know Isaac and uh, we'll, we'll let Bradley talk every once in a while. As little as possible, right? I only get to talk on uh, when we talk about favorite beef and dairy breeds and Isaac's uh, you know, newer professor, so he kind of has to give the right answers, right? I think that's how it goes. Yeah, I'm going to lose my tenure vote because I'm going to say Brown Swiss is my favorite dairy breed. Is that what you're implying, Brad? <laughs> oh, I knew you were going to say that as your favorite. Uh, that that was predictable. That was obvious. The beef one might be. I'm going to throw you guys for a loop on the beef one. I think so. All right. So con- confirm officially asking Isaac, what is your favorite dairy breed? Yes, I can confirm. So I grew up. Uh, for those of those, those people listening that don't know, I grew up. Uh, I didn't grow up on a, on a, on a milking operating dairy farm, but I grew up on, I guess, a kind of a hobby farm where I owned my own herd of brown, registered brown Swiss cows that we bred and show and raise and things like that. And then when they lactated, we sent them off to some other farms. So naturally I have to say brown Swiss is my favorite breed, right? They are gloriously stubborn. They are a pain in the butt. They love uh, to not get pregnant. They love to get hemorrhagic bowel syndrome. But despite all those flaws, they're wonderful cows to, to, to raise and, uh, and show and all that sort of stuff. So we, we will let Brown Swiss slide today. You know, somebody caught me in a weak moment out here and we have a, about four Brown Swiss sired calves. So I, I will let that slide today. I'm very happy to hear that. You got a couple of brown Swiss crosses out there in Morris. So we're mostly concerned about Holstein. So as long as it's not a vote for Holstein, we're gonna be okay. Although it is getting a little tight. Holsteins are at twenty three, Jersey's at seventeen, Brown Swiss now at ten, up into the double digits. Montbilliard at three, Dutch belted at three, Guernsey at three with a shout out to Taffy, Normandy at two, Milking Shorthorn at one, and Ayrshire at one. They're climbing up the leaderboard. Don't like it, but still not a Holstein, so we're okay. We got to get some more Swiss people on the podcast. You guys got yeah, it. If you find them, send them our way, and we'll, we'll have them on. Might be might be pretty rare. Uh, all right, so on the beef side, throw us for a loop. What is your favorite breed of beef cow? Well, so I was originally going to say Red Angus because my uncle's got a Red, Red Angus herd out in eastern South Dakota, but I have an even better answer than that, which is, miniature scottish highlander because another uncle that lives close to where i grew up had two miniature scottish highlanders at, at one point he had a he has like he had like used to have like an exotic animal ranch where he'd have one week he'd have camels and the next week he'd have llamas and all sorts of stuff so he had one, he had miniature highlanders and i remember uh one morning this was while i was like a junior in high school i got to miss the entire 
morning of, of my high school classes because the Scottish Highland miniature Scottish Highlanders got out and we were chasing them all around the county trying to get them in there. And those things are, man, uh, I mean, regular Scottish Highlanders are already a pain in the butt, but the smaller the cow gets, the, the, the bigger the attitude. And uh, they were just such a pain in the butt to get in the trailer and haul back to his farm. So that would be my favorite answer because they got me out of a, a morning of, of high school class. That's a, that's a good answer. I can't I can't say anything about it. Exactly. I mean, it, <laughs> you got the story to go with it. So, yeah, we can't we can't criticize that one at all. <laughs> not at all. So, all right. The totals. Black Angus at 16. Herford's at 10. Black Bollies at 5. Scottish Highlander, the big version, at 4. Red Angus at 3. Shorthorn at 3. Charlay at 3. Belted Galloway at 2. Brahmin at 2. All with 1. Stabilizer, Galvi, Keenina, Simitana, Lori, Jersey, Normandy, Belgian Blue, Brangus, Piedmontese, White Park, and now miniature Scottish Highlanders. <laughs> All right. That's going to be fun to say for a while. I'm, I'm glad that we get to tag that on the end. Down to business. Isaac, I think briefly tell us your journey and how you ended up at the University of Minnesota quick. Yeah, sounds good. So I already somewhat alluded to uh, kind of growing up. Uh, having my own small registered herd of brown Swiss. I'll also say, so a lot of my interest in dairy uh, was cultivated by my father, who for, I don't know, 25 plus years has been an extension agent uh, at the University of Minnesota, uh, extension dairy specialist. Some people listening to the podcast might know him, Jim Sulfur. Um, so he kind of helped cultivate my interest in dairy. And then growing up, we raised the registered brown Swiss, as I mentioned. Um, and I was also heavily involved in 4-H and FFA and dairy judging and the Junior Holstein Association, the Junior Brown Swiss Association, those kind of activities. So that was really where, where my interest in dairy started. I came to the University of Minnesota for undergraduate majoring in animal science, focusing on dairy production. I did start pre-vet, so I will say I did start pre-vet and I was actually admitted into the VetFest program, which is you can get admitted to your freshman year of undergrad and have a spot held for you in grad school. But um, sorry to tell you this, Joe, but over my first couple of years of undergrad, after shadowing some vet, vets and taking some classes, I became more interested in going to graduate school than I did going to vet school. <laughs> That's okay. Through our time uh, as vet students, pre-vet, all of it, we were told repeatedly by every veterinarian in practice, don't do it. I'm, I'm convinced that every good veterinarian was told don't do it multiple times and we did it anyway. And we, we have no, no qualms with anybody that saw the light and didn't do it. You know, I always had in the back of my mind because my dad worked a lot with the faculty at the University of Minnesota. I, my mom tells me that even when I was like in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, when she had, when people asked what I wanted to do as a living, I, I said, Oh, I think it'd be really fun to be a professor. Like all those professors that dad works with. So I always kind of had it in the back of my head that it would be really fun to go to graduate school and maybe pursue uh, eventually becoming a professor at a university someday. Kind of cool that it worked out that way. So I did at University of Minnesota after doing undergrad, stayed and did a master's there here with um, Dr. Marshall Stern. Kind of another little fun tidbit is that Marshall is now uh, in phase out retirement and living in Florida. So I got to move into his office. Still sort of surreal every day, uh, kind of going into my office and being like, that's, that's Marshall's office. That's not my, my office. So uh, so I did my PhD out at Penn State University. I didn't want to become too academically inbred. I wanted to get a little different experience, see a different part of the country. And so I, I ended up uh, going out to Penn State. 
That's actually where I ended up meeting my wife, who's a faculty member in the department in poultry reproduction. It's also where I met Isaac Hagen, who I know was on this podcast a few months ago, um, who's also a good friend of mine who did his PhD at Penn State as well. So uh, Penn State was a really rewarding experience, both from uh, developing, getting to work with really good mentor and doing cool research, but also met a lot of good friends there, too, that I wouldn't have met necessarily. You made it back here, which is the, the important piece. You made it back to the correct university. You didn't stay at Penn State. What was behind that? Well, and specifically, how did you convince your wife to come to Minnesota instead? That's probably the hardest part. So, um, yeah, so I, it was always my goal to come back here, to be honest. That, that was actually part of my, uh, my impetus for going to another university, too, is that I was like, well, hopefully I get a PhD somewhere else. I can uh, come back to Minnesota. I didn't. I wasn't smart like Brad, and just did all my degrees in the same place, and then got hired at University of Minnesota. I was like, "Well, I'm not as smart as Brad, so I got to diversify a little bit." Um, so coming back to University of Minnesota, I actually did make a brief pit stop at South Dakota State right after I graduated. So um, right after, like a month after I gra- defended my PhD, I started at South Dakota State. I stayed there for a year and a half, and then this position opened up, and I was able to, to get this job. Uh, the question you asked about how did I convince my wife to move to Minnesota, I I still don't know if she's convinced that she wants to live in Minnesota. I think it's a, a matter of uh, every winter, I just have to tell her that, oh, this is one of the bad winters. And uh, she halfway believes me. And then, uh, yeah, anyway. That, yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I'm glad that so far you've been able to convince her because, yeah, we're glad to have you here. Let, let's get into your lab. We've already talked about how surreal it is being in your, your old advisor's office. You've got his old lab, too. You're working on very different things, right? So tell us kind of the overview, the goal of your lab. What's What are you trying to find out? The answer I always give when people ask is I'm doing too much or I'm doing too many different things, which I do have. a I, I'm the t- a type of person who's interested in a lot of different things, who gets excited about a lot of different ideas. So naturally, my research program has expanded out to do research on a lot of different topics. So um, in my PhD at Penn State, uh, the research that I started working or I did for my, my PhD dissertation was all related to um, circadian rhythms and metabolism. So just as a little bit of an introduction in the background, circadian rhythms are your internal daily clock that schedules when you're hungry and when you want to go to bed and all these kind of things. Um, they actually have a lot of really interesting applications for metabolism. And there's not a lot known about how they impact dairy cows and dairy cow nutrition. So one part of the one area that I'm researching is trying to better understand how these circadian rhythms affect the metabolism of cows and ultimately with the goal of trying to improve feed efficiency. So if these clocks are operating at a certain time of day, how can we optimally manage cows to, to meet that internal clock that they have? Um, so that's a, probably a, probably the biggest component of the research that I'm working on or a large component of my research is focusing on this circadian aspects, circadian nutrition type stuff within dairy cows. Before we move on to, to letting you get to all your, the other stuff you're interested in, one of the big clarifying questions that always comes up, and I want to get your take on it when we're talking about circadian rhythms, is the difference between circadian rhythms and seasonal rhythms. And if you could talk to that for just a second, I, I think that's a question that I get quite often. Yes, that's a great question. That is sort of a vocabulary thing that I get asked a lot as well. So circadian rhythms, so circadian, if we get into the Latin nitty gritty of it, circadian means about a day in Latin. So a circadian rhythm is really referring to a 24 hour rhythm within a day. 
a seasonal rhythm or the other, there's a term called circannual rhythm, or sometimes I'll use the term annual rhythm, just annual, not circannual. That refers to a rhythm that goes across a year. So cows do have both circadian rhythms where they have certain responses, including milk production that change within a day. They also have this annual rhythm or seasonal rhythm where you have a change across the entire year where you have typically milk production is highest in like April, May and lowest in like September, October. And you have different rhythms for fat, uh, fat percent, protein percent and things like that too. So is that clear? Did that make sense? Yeah, that made, that made total sense. And I, I'm glad that we, we got to that right away. Circadian rhythms, seasonal rhythms, metabolism, nutrition, all those, how they interact. That's one piece. What else are you working on? So um, I'm also working a lot on kind of sustainability, I would say, and different aspects of how to improve feed efficiency and sustainability of livestock systems. I think holistically, if we look at all the research I'm doing, really what we're trying, what I'm trying to do, and this is probably true of most people that are doing nutrition research in cattle, we're trying to improve feed efficiency of cows, figure out what strategies to get more milk and more milk, fat, and protein out of less feed. So Within that realm, we're also looking a lot at how to improve nitrogen use efficiency. So cows, one of the advantages of cows is that they can consume non-protein nitrogen, but they're not super efficient at that. So how do we improve their ability to utilize uh, nitrogen that's included within feed? And then also, how do we improve their energetic efficiency? Some of that work we're doing, I'm actually collaborating with Brad on some stuff looking at, um, actually, that one is more genetic. So it's looking at the impact of genetics on uh, methane emissions and energetic efficiency in cows but we're also doing some other work with different feed additives and how those can improve energetic efficiency too so that's kind of that's a very broad piece and it goes in a lot of different directions one of the reasons i did that is that that's a little bit more applied type research so i can do a lot more studies that will have a direct impact on dairy producers where i can test um, the effect of a specific feed additive or, or a specific type of feeding strategy on energetic efficiency and nitrogen efficiency in cows. So. And we always measure milk production too. So there's always that applied component of how how does it affect how productive the cows are at the end of the day too. Right. So if you're if you're more efficient, I mean it's better for everyone, the farmer, the environment, you know, economics overall, great. One of the questions I have for you, Isaac, is when we talk sustainability, we always talk efficiency. And we're always talking feed efficiency. And I feel like we've gotten so good with that from a management standpoint. And I'm glad to hear you're addressing it from the genetic side of things as well. Are we going to run out of ways to find more efficiency eventually and have to pivot and do something else? Yeah, that's a great existential type question, Joe. And I think about that a lot because, of course, it's always the question, are we eventually going to run ourselves out of a job? And I... I at least think for my career and for, for a good long period of time, there's always ways to improve efficiency of cows. One thing I always think about to kind of make myself feel better about this question is what, so currently what's the, maybe you guys both know the answer to this. I know probably re relative, but what's the currently the highest producing cow uh, in the country? She made what, like 79,000 pounds of milk in a single year, something like that. And if you would have told somebody in 1980 that the highest producing cow was going to make 79,000 pounds of milk, that would be absolutely absurd, right? And well, so if you if you track average milk production and you track kind of these genetic extremes of milk production over time, it seems like we still have potential to make more milk, right? And we still have potential to, to have cows that are more efficient, right? I, 
I guess you can't always say just because they're making more milk, they're more efficient, but it, it tends to be the, the more they produce, typically the more milk they produce, the more efficient they end up be, becoming, right? So I guess that's kind of the way that I look at it is that I think we still are seeing trends towards improvements in the kind of the maximum potential of cows. So I think there's still opportunities there. And the other thing is, I think the questions and the challenges continue to change. As we solve certain problems, other problems come up. Oftentimes, I think when we solve problems, we create new problems in the process of solving those problems too. So I think that's maybe the way that we can keep thinking that we'll always have job security and there'll always be new problems to address. So We tend to focus on taking the top higher, right? How, how like where, where, how far can we push the ceiling? And that that's fun. And I think it's probably the, I don't know the right word, the sexier area of research, if research can be sexy, but the bottom up has a huge impact rather than the top higher. Right. So, and I think that is not going to go away. There's always dairies and management styles that need help bringing the bottom up to raise the average rather than taking the top higher that that that's fun for me to think about because i i think it's more of a challenge to do that so i like that aspect i don't know how you feel about that i don't know if your research is addressing that in any way brad can comment on this too since you guys are working together on these things yeah that's a good question again kind of philosophical and and I, I, I guess what I tell myself, my research is for all producers. So it, I think a lot of the, new, the research strategies that I try to do, I, I guess I don't necessarily think about them as just addressing those really high, man, well-managed herds versus the, the low-managed herds. Ideally, what I'm trying to do is, is develop new research strategies that kind of change the way we think about how we feed cows for all feeding types, right? And a lot of I'm doing a lot of kind of basic fundamental research that's hopefully going to lead to more applied feeding strategies down the line, too. Um, I think your point is really good. A lot of what I think about, too, is like, can we shift the bell curve? So I think about the performance of herds is always going to be in some sort of shape of bell curve where you have the average, you have the really elite herds on one side, the really the less elite or the poorer herds on one side. And if you can shift the entire median or you can shift the entire bell curve, of herds, so the the lower herds go up while the upper herds go up altogether. I do think in our role, like an extension and at universities, we do have a large obligation to help, particularly the producers that don't have those resources of you know, some of the larger herds that are really well managed already have a lot of industry consultants that can help them. I think at a university that we have a, the unique position to help some of those herds that maybe don't even know about some of those available resources from industry and things like that. Those are kind of two different topics, but I think maybe different ways to look at that question. Yeah, that's perfect. Bradley? Well, I could always debate. I, you know, the, the question is, do we need to get more milk out of cows? And is that a way to get efficient? You know, we, we seem to pr be able to produce too much milk now. You know, milk prices are lower. We have a, a flood of milk. Some farms in Minnesota are dumping milk for various reasons. So I'm not sure that efficiency is all about trying to increase milk production, but that's me. I, th I think efficiency includes many different ways and some of it maybe, actually Isaac and I'll probably be exploring what he talked about, looking at methane efficiency and using nutritional aspects to improve greenhouse gas efficiency, feed efficiency of cows, uh, probably with the same amount of milk production, or at least trying to, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's always, a it's, it's one of those things, of course, you want more milk because you get paid more for it, but 
in some sense, we're always our own worst enemies because when milk price is high, then we want to milk as many cows as possible. And I have that problem too uh, here at, at Morris. It's like, ooh, milk price is up. Let's milk more cows. Well, that might not be always the good thing. But I think if, if efficiency is many different things. That's true. And I, as a nutritionist, I tend to think very heavily and very focused on feed efficiency. But there are a lot of societal aspects and different aspects of society. One area I think about sustainability that we don't really talk about is kind of the human capital side of sustainability. And without getting controversial, I think that kind of goes to your point that if you have fewer, if, if cows make more milk, then you need fewer cows, right? If you have, if you need fewer cows, then you need fewer dairy farmers. And especially as herds get bigger, which they continue to go, you know, fewer dairy farmers. Well, that's fewer small businesses that exist. I don't think this is 100% true, but I think there's a lot of value for one of the great things about being a farmer is owning your own small business. You're having the ability to kind of control your own destiny in that sense. And I think uh, as our cows become more productive and our industry becomes more integrated, we lose some of that. Taking nothing away from large producers, I think it's just the way the economy works, right? You're driven to the good people do well and their herds grow and they they improve, but it is kind of, I guess, the double-edged sword of that fewer people then get the opportunity to own a farm. And then I think about that in terms of the aspect of, well, then there's like, so I have a teaching appointment, right? A lot of the kids that get an animal science degree focused on, on dairy science come from smaller herds because they're more involved in the day-to-day -day activity of the farm and whatnot. So then we have fewer of those kids coming to the university and it has, has these other kind of changes, whether those are good or bad. I'm not saying one way or another, but it, it, I think these are things to think about with that question too. So one of the things that we talk about every once in a while with Bradley is the challenge of grad students and how many he has. And there's just always more. And as he gets more successful, it comes with the added responsibility of more students. And that's good and bad. How are you handling that piece of the job, Isaac? That's a great question. And I think one of the things that I, I think has been challenging for me is that I, you know, I, I'm still relatively new in the job. I've only been at the University of Minnesota for two and a half years. It's only been, it's been less than five years since I was a graduate student myself. So, uh, and I, I ended up kind of through somewhat my own, I mean, that's a hundred percent my own doing, but just some somewhat because of circumstance ended up getting a really big lab really quick. So I have five graduate students already in two and, a, and I've only been here two and a half years. So I would say one of the challenges that I've experienced is that I didn't get the liberty of like screwing up on only one grad student. I got, I had to screw up being an advisor on multiple students at the same time because I had so many and was still figuring out organizational systems and best ways to advise students and things like that early on. So I think that was a challenge. I, I, I'm really lucky. One of the things, so I I have a lot of grad students and I don't know if I'm always the best advisor or at least I'm still learning how to be the best advisor I can be. But one of the things I've been very lucky is that I've had really good students and, and most of the students I have now are very independent and very curious and work really hard. Um, another thing I'll say is that uh, the type of research we do in my lab, uh, because a lot of it, we're collecting a lot of samples from cows, fundamental metabolism work. The circadian stuff requires samples to be collected at all hours of the night on a regular basis. And I'll also say, I put my grad students through a lot. I, 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 I make them do a lot of work just because of the nature of our research. And I'll say they've all really done a good job of stepping up to that challenge too. So 
I will say, if anything, the problem is me, that I, I took a lot of responsibility in advising a lot of grad students before I really had much practice actually being an advisor. Five students is plenty. Uh, that, that is a lot of work, but that, that means also you can get a lot done, especially if they're, they're good students and they work hard. That, that just means that a lot's getting done, which is good. Brad, do you have any high-level questions you had think of for a nutritionist? So here's a, here's a good question. Do you think there is any difference in feed efficiency or efficiency between breeds? You know, we always hear about this all the time that, A, jerseys are better in Holsteins for feed efficiency, which they are, of course. But uh, <laughs> is there something there? And maybe, you know, I, I know you were at SDSU and for just a year. They had a herd of brown Swiss out there. So I don't know if you did anything with the brown Swiss uh, animals out there. Is there any difference in efficiency by breeds or is there, or do we need to do more work on that? I think we definitely need to do more work on it before we can actually answer that question with any sort of authority, I guess, or with any truth. I think we can kind of speculate. I, I go back to one of the professors at Penn State who was a genetics professor. Uh, we had a class period where we, we just basically just discussed this question. And, and it, it, it wasn't really research-based because, again, there wasn't a lot of actually research done on this. But we just did some calculations where we looked at uh, feed intake versus milk production versus body weight versus nutrient partitioning stuff, comparing specifically jerseys versus Holsteins. And kind of the conclusion in that class was there, there you couldn't really say there was a difference. It wasn't necessarily that there was or wasn't a difference, but you couldn't really make the argument that there was a difference, right? Um, I would have to think there... Part of the challenge with feed efficiency is a lot of it depends upon what your measure or what your measure is too. So the easiest way to measure feed efficiency is just pounds of milk versus pounds of feed, right? But if, is that really feed efficiency because you need a certain amount of energy deposited as fat that stays on the cow so that they're healthy and you need energy for the immune system and you need energy for muscle growth so they don't have wasting disease and stuff like that. So I think that's kind of one of the challenges uh, with with answering that. I I would suspect there would probably be a breed difference and I don't want to speculate what it would be. I'd suspect that there would be some genetic, I mean, a lot of the research they've been doing with residual feed intake and stuff. And I know that's a whole another rabbit hole, maybe another podcast we can get and talk about specifically residual feed intake if you haven't done that already. But uh, there does seem to be some genetic effects on residual feed intake as a measure of feed efficiency. We, we need more information, I guess, is the very short, the, the short way of answering that. I agree. I agree. I, I think that, you know, you had a good point that efficiency is depends on how you measure it. I will say, since you were trying to get me to say jerseys were superior, I do really like jerseys. All. <laughs> I'm not trying to avoid saying that I like jerseys. I'm a big fan of jerseys. I'm a big fan of, I am a big fan of Holsteins. Uh, I'm a big fan of Brodsville's. I don't really have super big favorites when it comes to breeds. And I like crossbreds too. I'm not afraid to say that. I like crossbreds too. So so as you bring up crossbreds, because that came to my mind right away when we're talking efficiency and breeds. Yeah. I mean, I, and I always jump back and forth between the dairy and the beef side, right? Because there's things to learn from both that the other system can use. On the beef side, we talk a ton about uniformity. We We want to see regardless of the fact that our cows may be genetically different we want to see uniformity in body condition in size and just about everything not only because you get 
a calf lot that's worth more when they look identical, but also because you can make targeted nutrition decisions. And I don't feel like we talk about that as much on the dairy side. We kind of skirt around it when we talk about body condition during certain times of lactation or gestation and all this other stuff. But we never just really come out and say, I want all my cows to look the same, <laughs> which is really hard to do on a crossbed operation. Yeah, that's true. I, I, in my experience, like the herds that, that I hear talked about more in like growing heifer pens, right? So I, I will like some of the larger herds I've been to and talking to nutritionists and things like that, when they're looking at heifer growth and heifer management, I think there's a lot of talk about making sure that your heifers are really uniform. They're coming in, you have nice uniform sizes of pens that affects the way that you feed them and things like that. With cows, you know, I have heard some nutritionists that I've gone like on ride-alongs with and stuff like that, that will make comments about like, oh, I really appreciate that this herd, you look across the pen of cows, and they're all the same same height. They're all about the same body condition score for this high lactating cow pen or things like that. But I don't think industry wide, it's really something that we talk about. I think it's and I think there would be opportunities to definitely talk about it a lot more because I think from a management standpoint, uniformity is the ticket, right? I think it's really important to have cows that you can that are a similar group of cows because then you can manage them the same and more or less have the same results. So. Well, and we, we can talk all day about this topic and we can talk about how it applies to a pasture-based herd where we're talking about, I mean, a whole nother trying to figure out how much everyone's eating on a pasture setting, whole nother game, right? And Brad, maybe this is something that we've talked about before, but I can't remember. If you wanted to get actual feed intakes on a pasture-based herd, do you even have a way to do that? There, there are ways to do it. It's uh, kind of complicated. You can do before and after grazing. You can use internal markers, chromic oxide, titanium oxide, but it's not, you know, it's never perfect. It's, you know, never perfect on those. So it's more difficult to get true intake with a pasture-based animal than it is with one in confinement. That's probably one of the biggest challenges that uh, dairy, dairy nutritionists like myself get scared away from doing dairy research is that we're very much taught in grad school. You've got to control everything. And especially you've got to know intake on all of those cows that, that you're looking at. Because otherwise, how do you measure performance and nutrient use efficiency and things like that? So, but I do think, so I commend Brad, I guess is my point. I commend Brad for being adventurous and, and doing grazing research and, and being willing to deal with kind of these difficult methods to try to control for intake and things like that. So Yeah, it's not easy. Not easy. Well, and I, I, I'm a little selfish in asking, right? Because I, again, I'm taking things to the beef side, right? I, I want to know because I think there's a lot of areas that are unexplored when we talk about land use and things like that. And that all comes back to nutrient usage and grazing and how that all goes down. You can do it on a group level, but on an individual cow level to make improvements for the group, it'd be really difficult to do. All right, we have strayed quite a ways from the original purpose of the episode, so I think that's a sign that it's time to wrap it up. Thank you, Isaac, for being here. We'll have you on in the future to get into some of the specifics of the things you mentioned today and what you're studying, so we really appreciate you being here. Well, sounds good. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And as you saw, you can tell my brain does not go in linear directions, which is why our podcast went like from one side to the other side in kind of a zigzag pattern. But I, I thought it was a really fun discussion as always whenever I talk to you guys and I really appreciate 
you having me on. I've been wanting to get on the Moose Room for a while, so I'm glad I finally got the chance to do it. Yeah, exactly. We're glad you you can make it and uh, we'll do it again soon. All out there listening, have comments, questions, or scathing rebuttals. I will be happy to forward them to Isaac or walk him down to his office. Please email those to the moosroom at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. Catch us on Twitter at UMN Moosroom and at UMN Farm Safety. Catch Bradley on Instagram at Dairy. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye.